This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular, personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Well, hello and welcome to our latest podcast on Mercer's themes and opportunities for 2023. Now, themes and ops, as we call them, are our scene setter. Um, They essentially set our direction over a three to five year time horizon. They're basically kind of the glue that holds our thinking together and we publish them around about this time every year. Now, what we plan to do over the next 20 to 30 minutes or so is just run you through the broad outline of our thinking as we, we look ahead. I'm Jo Holden. Um, I'm Head of Research at Mercer, and I'm joined by our Global Strategic Research Director, Nick White, and also Matt Scott, who's a senior researcher in our strategic team. So guys, like 2022 has been quite the year. Um, the first question is, did we predict it all in our themes and ops last year, Nick? Um, I'm guessing possibly not, but but maybe you could just talk us through what's happened over the last year and, and, and maybe more importantly, how it's influencing our thinking as we head towards 2023. Yeah, sure. It's an interesting question. I think if we've been able to predict everything, I think you'd be a little bit nervous about, uh, I don't know, if we were the kind of organisation that should have predicted um, uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine. But um, if you argue that that and COVID were two triggers of a release of underlying pressure. Well, certainly the underlying pressure is something that we have been talking about for a while. Um, so we were talking about inflation, and obviously that was a critical issue at the beginning of the year and has continued to be an issue through the year. We've really been talking about inflation for quite a few years now, um, and the tone of that <laughs> that, descri- of that commentary has uh, sort of intensified over the years, especially at the end of last year, as we saw inflation still running hot and the Fed playing catch-up. Um, of course, they are continuing to play catch-up quite aggressively now. We've seen a massive increase in yield um, uh, as a response. So it was interesting how inflation has, has manifested because we were we look at the world through a set of scenarios and we were talking inflation surprise which could be driven by supply shocks and we were talking overheat, which could be driven by growth. And I think really what happened is we've got both of those at the same time because we had an overheat from a whole ton of stimulus um, that was then, of course, released. We had that combined with supply chain pressures from COVID and then, of course, the ultimate supply shock of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which, of course, has sent commodities um, to the stratosphere. I think... Um, what we got with that, of course, we've all felt this year. We've had really, really bad markets. Um, we had what we foreshadowed for quite a few years was the risk of correlated equity and bond markets on the downside. Um, that said, the speed, of course, with which it happened and the severity um, has been you know, perhaps a surprise to all and has certainly been pain to all. I mean, it's fascinating when you look at the the equity returns for the year with an S&P 500 down, what, 18, 20% or whatever it is, um, and a whole sea of red across equities and bonds, and then energy shining through with 60% returns. And it, it, it's really been quite a crazy year for the divergence. Um, 
I mean, that, that clearly is tricky to deal with from a themes and opportunities point of view. It's, I think the overarching message is so much has happened. Um, you need to be prepared to significantly reevaluate re the way you look at the world, the way you look at portfolios, both from a strategic and a dynamic point of view. Um, so... I mean, look, like you used um, three words there, like speed, severity, shock, um, you know, and I think that probably I don't think there'd be many of our clients, you know, who, who wouldn't sort of um, feel some kind of level of sympathy with, with that kind of description. And I think, you know, all of the things you've talked about, I think, you know, it's a lot to deal with as an investor. I think, you know, even if you're expecting some sort of change, I think probably what we've seen is that it can happen a lot more quickly than you were expecting. I mean, you talked about inflation. We've also talked about rate rises. So we kind of knew they were coming, but UK investors, my word. So those, mm. you know, they came for for, for, for those um, clients of ours sort of much more quickly than they were expecting. And the impacts can be very dramatic. I think, you know, every time we have a crisis, we talk about the value of scenario planning. You mentioned it a second ago. And I do think that most investors do that, but I just wonder whether maybe the past year has left some investors feeling much more cautious. Maybe, you know, I've heard a lot of talk about trying to really avoid tail events. And I just don't know whether there's a nuance there. Like, do you try and avoid those tail events or is it actually about making sure that you're equipped to deal with it? Either by being very well diversified. And again, like you talked about the fact that we were looking at lots of different inflation scenarios. So hopefully a lot of our mm. clients had different things in their portfolio for different types of scenario. But I guess, again, perhaps kind of what the last few weeks in the UK has taught us is that, you know, having a really crisp, well thought out liquidity plan um, can be extremely important as well. But anyway, I mean, I guess that's probably a whole other topic. So how about if we start to look ahead to 2023, Nate? Where, where would you go there? Well, 2023, obviously, uh, one of the joy of underperforming markets is that they're cheaper um, and that you get more attractive returns going forward. Um, our good old-fashioned reference point of 60-40 looks a lot more attractive now than it did. But I think there's a, there's a danger that you could be forward into thinking because those forward-looking returns look great, that you know we can start to really pile back into risk again. To all of your points, Joe, I think you know, it feels to us that even though assets are cheaper, the range of outcomes actually has got considerably wider. Um, there is no doubt that there has been a wholesale shift in geopolitics over over the last year. Um, I mean the the potential for globalization to be hit either gently over time or significantly um, has certainly increased. We talk about the risk of, um, of blocks creating uh, around the world, um, not so much not so much deglobalization, but more factionalization, uh, which has implications for supply chains and so on. But more to the point, it just has implications for risk in markets and volatility generally. So it's just, it's really important that that you do spread your risk. And if you want to be opportunistic in markets, absolutely you should be, but also be preparing for those tails at the same time, as you say, which is, I mean, it sounds like akin to a barbell strategy, maybe it is, but actually being prepared. I sort of think about the distribution 
um, as it's maybe it shifted, the distribution of returns was shifted to the right, but it's also flattened at the same time. So you've really got to manage those tails. That's, that's yeah. what the world has been like. So if, if that's sort of a, I mean, pretty brief overview of, of, of high level thinking for 2023, like Matt, maybe I can just bring you in now in terms of like, how do we go about distilling all of that into themes that we can actually talk to clients about? Um, I'd probably just say at this point that Matt is a very strong researcher, but he's also the creative force behind a lot of our theme titles. I think you definitely have kind of a second career at some point as a headline writer um but matt do you want to do you want to take us through some uh yeah i will Th- th- thank you very much for, for, for that joe hopefully the research is as, as strong as the the creative titles <laughs> yeah, no, just to be clear <laughs> uh, I, I just wanted to pick up as well ab- about this this point about um scenarios i think the there's a lot of value in what ifing in 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 a very uncertain world and i think you know Often, when you consult to, to clients, you can get in a you can get in a position where the client what definitely wants to focus on that sort of central case and you know on on those expected return numbers you give them, and often they don't sort of like ask the sort of what if questions you you know like what if stagflation comes what have you got in your portfolio that's actually going to protect you from that and people often want to stay in that sort of central case place but I, th- I think. You know what? What we're being shown now is staying in that central case place probably probably isn't a you know a great place to be. Um, but in terms of turn, turning all that we've been talking about there in, in, into themes, um, we came up with a title for uh, this year's themes and opportunity of Deja New, and that that's obviously a sort of uh, play on the phrase de- deja vu you know w- we've seen it all before and there is a lot going on at the moment that we've seen before you know we're we're in this sort of weak growth uh, period uh, there's tightening happened happening and there's a lot of inflation in the system and th- that should really bring to mind the the, the 1970s essentially uh, and it's really you 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 know it's not it's not a glib comparison you know if you actually go back and look in look at history you know people tend to forget um scenes like uh president nixon going to congress and asking for money to support uh israel through their conflict in the yom kippur war for example and that's really when opec came into its own and there, there was an oil embargo on the us and that had dramatic conflict uh, consequences for inflation for for the entire decade. There was also actually, I think, one of the things that's sort of similar but but different was that it it was a period where people were just coming out of a pandemic. So at the time, it was the the Hong Kong flu, um, which people don't really remember t- t- too much, but it was actually sort of pretty similar same ballpark lethality to, to COVID, but obviously the sort of world's response to it was incredibly different. Um, you know, on a more sort of fun, geeky point, we sort of noticed that we had two premiers called Johnson who were incapacitated at the time. So Lyndon Johnson in, in the States and, and Boris Johnson in the UK. But I think the the thing... The, the main thing that I wanted to, to draw out that's that's different this time, that's the kind of new part of, of Deja New, is is what we can do about it. So in in the seventies, uh, 
the the US particularly was really caught asleep by by what happened in in the Middle East. Um, it, that was the time when they started doing things like building up uh, strategic oil reserve, but you know there there wasn't really much place many places for them to go essentially they just had to eat, eat the consequences interestingly it was a time when technology did come into its own a bit you saw for example um japanese car makers uh making great headway into the us car market because of the uh, better miles per gallon that you could get from those cars but i think the place where we are now um, we've actually got a wide range of pretty scalable renewable technologies. I think we're at about 12%. This, this is based on our own calculations of technologies that you can really sort of scale upwards. So this time, we don't necessarily have to, 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 to eat this inflation. We could actually do something about this. We, we, we could, you know, decentralize energy production be a lot less fragile but have a lot cheaper energy production going forward so that was one of the, the major uh, pieces to to come out of this um so if that's kind of the headline matt like what about then the three themes that we've pulled out um to kind of coalesce around yeah so uh we've we've called them history rhyme uh position for transition and degrees of freedom. So I'll just give you a brief overview of those. History rhyme is is a lot of what I've been talking about, but it's based on this Mark Twain idea that history doesn't repeat itself, but it but it does rhyme, and we definitely see that rhyme uh, going back to the seventies. So within that, I think we are talking a lot about in, inflation again. You know, I think there's a lot of expectation that in, inflation uh, is is going to be coming down from from this point in and maybe that's a sort of central case and a sort of more nearer term uh look at things in, in a lot of people's uh books what we're sort of keen to to point out is that there is actually sort of over the medium to long term quite quite a lot of forces that could mean that we see some sort of persistence in in inflation or at least that is one of the big what ifs that we think investors have to think about. So just things like this slowing down in globalization, which what we're what we're terming sort of factionalization. Uh, this idea that authorities might prefer to to sort of lag uh, rate rises behind inflation to to get rid of uh, debt burden. Uh, things like greenflation. Um, you know, we, we have a look at things like uh, Moore's Law and Crider's Law, which are the sort of technical terms for uh, the deflation you get when, when you look at software processing power and, and storage and see that those things aren't really sort of uh, bringing, keep keeping an anchor on prices anymore. So we think there is actually quite a lot of, quite a lot of, you know, what if thing to be done on medium to, to longer term inflation. And we think there's a potential that we are actually at a higher sort of baseline for, for inflation potentially. Uh, position for transition, I guess, is is a theme that we had last year that is, you know, pretty pretty evergreen. You know, the world's in the middle of a sustainability crisis. Uh, one of the things that we were very keen to to bring out is that biodiversity is one of the key crises there. You know, if you if you if you look at the sort of Stockholm resilience chart of the planetary boundaries, we're sort of right into the the red line on uh, biodiversity. 
but we also have to have a, have a look at how uh, you know what our plan is for emissions, what our plan is for engagement. Uh, I think sustainability has been you you know a big political football this year. It's always at times that are, that are most difficult. You know when when we've seen these huge energy price increase that you have to be sort of strongest and you have to sort of not not let go of of, of what what we need to do even though it's very tempting to say let's really, let's just sort of start doing really more exploration point, um that you bring up there actually a couple of us were having a discussion the other week about sort of the whole sustainability piece and how look you know i mean there's a lot of pressure depending on where you live in the world um kind of one way or the other on all things esg and I think, you know, the kind of the comment that came out of that discussion was that, wow, I mean, sometimes as an asset owner, you've just got to be quite thick skinned um, about what you're doing, you know, providing that you have a clear goal and your objectives and you're sort of, you know, you're happy with what you're doing, that actually sometimes you have to sit tight. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting actually to sort of hear you coming out with that because it's clearly sort of a, a clearly a thread. Um, similarly, I guess sort of you know it, again, if we look back at what happened in the UK a couple of weeks ago with the whole LDI issue, you know there was a lot of criticism coming from some quarters, and I think sort of that is a different but similar sort of piece in terms of really having to to stick to your knitting if you believe you're doing the right doing the right thing. But sorry, Matt, I interrupted your um, I interrupted your thread there. No, 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 I. I... I mean, I think I think that's very true, and I think you you know, as it is a sort of it, it's a more difficult time for sustainability. People really have to you you know think very hard about it, um, and they have to be pragmatic. Um, so one one of the areas that we we sort of really picked out where maybe sustainabilities have sustainability investors have have really uh, not looked at very closely is mining. So one of the reasons that we've been looking at that is that it seems something that's very in- integral for for transition, but also something that's very damaging. You know, there's no way you can sort of get away from the fact that knocking massive holes in the ground it you know causes problems it causes problems with with things like biodiversity that we've just been talking about but also that if you believe in this sort of bright green future where we electrify and we use a lot more renewables you simply do need a lot more metals at the moment and you you know a question that i often get asked by people is you, you know, well, what, which of the metals do do we need them? At? And the problem is that it comes back to the fact that we probably need all of these, and it is somewhat of an inconvenient truth, just how much metal is needed. Say, if you want to start up on, uh, if 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 you want to put up a, a solar array, or you want to do a, a wind farm, just how much steel and concrete you need. You know, people often focus on on battery metals, for example, which obviously very are very much are needed to sort of deal with intermittency problems. But I think what I'm very keen to do is to make sure that investors that engage in sustainability, they do all the good work on emissions, they do all the work on biodiversity, but they are actually sort of very pragmatic, that they don't rely on things like exclusions, that maybe they get involved in in areas like mining and just do a lot of the heavy lifting work on engagement and making sure that those processes are happening in in the best possible way. 
Um, That's right. And the industry is they're, they're not blind to this. I was in a meeting today with a with a group about responsible uh, mining practices, um, and the, these are the kind of practices that asset owners can use in their um, in getting their exposures to areas that may actually, in some regards, be uncomfortable to them. Uh, it's it's a stock specific thing, clearly, but um, that's why active management and engagement is so absolutely critical in that space. I mean, yeah, maybe I'm- running with that for um, for engagement. I think um, our, our general view is that those firms that don't don't keep up um, with social and environmental. Um, principles, essentially, you know, if they allow their social and environmental impact to essentially go um, unmanaged, their valuations definitely will be impacted, uh, whether gradually with, you know, the withdrawal of investors' dollars uh, across the market over time, or indeed suddenly with some adverse news flow and some reputational damage. Um, And that seems, that principle is something we've been talking about for a couple of years, but it, it certainly seems to be something that's but strengthening. I mean, I think what's what's interesting in that context is it, it may be difficult for some of those clients who are re- very, very focused on these transition pathways. I think we've already mentioned that the transition pathways are perhaps not, um, are not something that's easy to manage. But the worst thing that can happen in those transition pathways is that you, you, you do the exclusions because the exclusions help you follow the pathways. And really what we need is people to be thinking in terms of transition highways such that they can allow that to flex just a bit such that they can allocate to the right stops at the right time, as long as they have an ESG overlay and as long as they have the engagement, et cetera, um, and the right tools that underpin it to um, allow you to capture the statistics that will drive that engagement story. Yeah, I think an an area that's been really sort of interesting uh, over the last 12 months is technology, you've seen sort of massive decline in in tax stock prices. And I actually think that that really does come back to what you were saying about sort of uh, consideration, particularly of social factors. You know, it's something that people weren't really thinking about. There there was really like some emerging thought about the negative externalities on, on about tech. You know, this thing where people are spending way too much time logging into their favorite apps, you know, generating a lot of dysphoria. And I think that that sort of those sort of inflated tech prices really sort of came under a lot of pressure. And I think that actually that that really led into um one one of our sub themes this year which was uh, mother necessity so this is based around the the idea that um invention is the mother of necessity so really what when i was thinking about that what i was trying to do is actually align the problems that the world faces today with the solutions that w- we're going to need for those problems and that actually sort of leads to technology quite naturally, but maybe it's a sort of different sort of technology to some of the, the mega success stories of the last uh, uh, decade. So maybe particularly, you know, aging demographics, for example, is one of the, the big challenges that the world faces. And that would lead naturally into having another look at healthcare, which is which is an area that people think is probably overbought because COVID was such a big story. So everyone's buying healthcare stocks. 
but actually you, you do sort of start to see some really attractive uh, na- names in those areas and they, they've had sort of valuation problems like, like the entire rest of the market I guess. I mean, Matt, like you mentioned innovation there, and I know that sort of we typically think about innovation being expressed via private markets. And that's sort of something that we talk about in our final theme. Nick, I don't know whether you were going to cover that one. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, typically, when we think of innovation, the first thing we think of is is venture capital. Uh, and that's probably true. Um, certainly, that's where um, you can get access to those very, very early stage um, exposures. I mean, it's a fascinating time for innovation. This will sound like a very dramatic statement, but to me, it feels like we've never in human history needed innovation more than we need today, simply because of what we have to solve from a broad climate change point of view, but also from what we've already mentioned, which is biodiversity, which is, um, the more you read about it, really quite scary indeed. Um, But innovation really does... It does span the spectrum, um, and certainly in in areas like um, climate change, it, it's vital. But at every level um, of growth, you will find innovation. Um, and what's important is that when you look at your portfolio, is you can actually look through to that innovation. Where you know, are we invested in tech companies that have strong R and D? So, for instance, in our um, our climate tra- climate transition analysis tool. We pick up whether they've uh, a company has green patents within it. You know the number of patents that they have um, coming through, and of course that principle can apply to all forms of, uh, of of patents, not just green patents. But that ability to be able to see through your portfolio beyond just venture capital, but also more broadly across the full listed space, what you're funding through private debt, etc. Um, can only think that that is actually go- need going to need to be a really tangible, very visible part of your portfolio. Whereas at the moment, perhaps you know it's a small allocation to venture capital. So it is definitely about people um, looking for those opportunities in venture capital, but also about being a lot broader about where those opportunities really lie. Do you think? I mean, we talked about liquidity um, a few minutes ago. And again, you know, particular types of investors that have, I mean, again, sorry to keep mentioning it, but clearly it was quite a big thing, the LDI crisis. I mean, you just sort of wonder whether those sorts of things are going to pit investors off private markets, given liquidity issues that we had over the last few weeks. Are you concerned about that? Do you think that might be a blip? Do you sort of think that, I mean, you almost sort of talked about private markets being a necessity there in terms of accessing some of the innovation that we're going to need. So is, is it is it a blip? Do you think most investors will continue to, to sort of embrace illiquidity? It's it's certainly a concern. I mean, there, there, are, there are two issues there. There's, there's one, which is, have you got the cash? Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, there are some funds out there who are currently running higher allocations to private markets than they typically would have in their strategic allocation because they've been having to to find liquid assets to you know fund yeah. what they needed to fund. So that's one. That, that's a very real constraint. It's difficult to argue with that one. You know, people have to put themselves back on a on an even keel. Um, but the other concern, which is around valuations, and of course, as we know, private markets valuations can typically lag listed um, valuations. There is that's another reasonable concern. But that's perhaps where emotion can get in front of of rational behavior. Um, It's certainly 
it's certainly true that of course some of the best vintages are when markets are cheaper and that's just very natural um also there are more opportunities in private markets when there are firms who are um who are in need of capital mm-hmm. um so it's really important for those those clients who are not just physically constrained by liquidity levels within their portfolio um that they don't get put off by what's going on in markets and they continue to to keep topping up that um that program because actually the chances are it's going to pay dividends in the long run it's very critical in this kind of environment it's also a time when you see when when growth starts to falter you you see those more innovative companies actually that's when they really invest invest the most effort into R&D, not just to in, you know boost revenues over time, but to ensure that they protect revenues by tr- trying to emerge as, as part of the pack. So, you know, there's um, those opportunities for funding in, that, uh, in this kind of environment is actually it's very strong. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be veering away from it, it should be running towards it. I mean, look, look, private markets clearly sort of a key part of that final theme um, that we've got degrees of freedom. Um, I think we were calling it. Was there sort of anything else that you wanted to say on that? Say on that theme, Nick, before we start to wrap up. Yeah. So, degrees of freedom. We talk about operational alpha, which is really a principle that summarises a lot of what we've been talking about here. Which is that governance will be an alpha in itself. It always is a form of alpha. How dynamic are you? How um, how much capacity do you have to invest in private markets? Um, but in these kind of environments where you've got this broad spread of outcomes, you've got the potential for volatility, you've got the potential for shocks to come through, you've got the potential for geopolitics to um, reorganize the way that companies have to work. Uh, we've seen what's happened with semiconductors, for instance. You know, we're going to need to respond. We're going to need to be um you kind of need to be working fairly hard with portfolios to ensure that they're robust not just capturing return um yeah so i think that's probably the last thing to say in that but that really does bring together so much of what we've already said because it it encapsulates that environment so well yeah no i like that and i have to say i mean it feels as though i mean clearly we want all of our themes to be as pragmatic as 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 they possibly can be but that one in particular i think allows you to kind of really focus on the difference you can make by sort of being well organized and and sort of the way and i guess your sort of capacity for making um decisions as well um I mean, listen, guys, thanks for um, all of your thoughts. I mean, what's absolutely clear, I don't need to say it, do I? It's a very complex time for investors at the moment. And I guess what we're trying to do with our themes and opportunities is really try and group some of those sort of those big issues together into themes. And I really do hope that that helps our our, our clients, sort of all asset owners, try and forge a path through um, what's probably not going to be an easy time um, going forward. Um, thanks to everyone who joined us for listening. Um, the papers that fall under our, our themes and opportunities can be found in the description of the podcast, um, sort of where you clicked on that. If you have got any questions on anything we've talked about today or the podcast series in more general, you can you can email us at ctci at mercer.com. Um, If you've enjoyed what you've heard, it would be great if you could subscribe to the series, but also please feel free to leave us a review. Um, Again, Nick, Matt, thank you very much indeed for joining me um, today. And thanks everyone for listening.